0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: So when we hear those clicking buttons at the beginning, is your mic on when you're doing that, or is that just coming through the board?
2: Yeah, it's my mic, but i got to get a longer intro. I'm uh, working on that.
1: Oh, time. I see. Okay, I was, I was just curious if it was just coming through the board, if it was through your mic. Today, we have argued that this is hell due to the repressive nature of all the hellishly systemic and institutional oppressions we face every day that are imposed upon us with brute force that only brings additional misery to our lives. Yeah, kind of bleak, but this is hell, so of course we've pointed out What you would think are the obvious and more institutional challenges facing all of society that if they were overcome, every one of us would benefit. And you would think these obstacles to true freedom and liberation would be reported in the news media daily and nightly repeatedly in order to overcome the worst humanity has to offer. Like racism... Sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, white privilege, white supremacy, neoliberalism, settler colonialism, imperialism, capitalism more generally. But today's guest has something to add to that long list that seems to keep growing. And in fact, it may be the all-encompassing challenge that includes everything I just mentioned. And that is nationalism, specifically conservative nationalism, as in nations and the creation of borders, which necessarily creates the other and is a very slippery slope toward authoritarianism, even fascism, which explains the rise of the far right around the world today. Returning for his sixth appearance on This Is Hell, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour wrote the Salvage Magazine, Salvage Quarterly article. The Nationalist Unconscious. To fully grasp the rise of the new authoritarians, we must engage with psychoanalysis as well as economics. Richard is a member of the editorial collective at Salvage, a biannual journal of revolutionary arts and letters. This article is from the September 2020 issue, and you can find out more about Salvage at their website, salvage.zone Follow Salvage on Twitter at salvage.zone, and that's actually the word dot at the Twitter handle, salvage, D-O-T, zone. Richard was on most recently back in August of last year when he spoke with him about his uh, incredible book, The Twittering Machine. And if you're somebody who does use Twitter, you must read The Twittering Machine. All of our interviews with Richard are currently available at our website, this is hell.com, and you can follow Richard on Twitter at Leninology, lenino ology, and you can find out more about him at his website, Leninology.co.uk. And of course, we'll wrap up this week's show as we do most week's show with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorch. and this week Jeff finds out who put the Pomp in Pompeo. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Any plans for the weekend, Alex?
2: Uh, well, physically, I feel like shit. And mentally, I'm poisoning my brain with drugs to not think about the future. But I'm growing Job's tears and they're coming up. So uh, things are looking up. <laughs> Want to tell people what Job's tears are? It's a type of a grain. I think that you can uh, eat and also make into a bead. So you, you have to choose one of those two things. I think with it, <laughs> that's just like a fun ornamental grass. I am uh, going to be relaxing tomorrow because my girly
1: is getting the third of second of July, whatever, third of July off because of July Fourth weekend. She's getting Friday off, whatever. So I think this weekend uh, she might be giving me a much-needed haircut, which will, I assume, take several hours. A lot of drinking and
2: bong rips from me, and then I think it will lead to an argument and possibly a fight. Uh, Let me just say, if you divorce (laughs) yourself from any expectations about the outcome, you can just do it yourself. (laughs) I cannot. My depth perception does not. I would probably (laughs) stab myself
1: in the forehead. This week's question from hell is, who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? And by the way, I want to make a couple of real quick clarifications about what I said about... The gun image yesterday, I referred to the person in Phoenix as a different issue where there was a woman of color, she was assaulted by a white woman, and then she turns around and slaps the white woman in the face. I referred to the person who was being attacked by the white supremacists as a person of color. And the argument got to a point where the white person was saying, go back to the country that you came from. The person of color was also Native American, which makes that... Even more intense So she told the woman, look, I've been here forever Where did you come from? So I I said that she was a person of color And I didn't say that she was a Native American And I should have pointed that out And secondly, I said both the white supremacists in Phoenix and St. Louis uh, Were wearing uh, the same type of striped floral Or striped top And they were Except one, it continued into a dress The other one was just a blouse So I just want to make those couple of clarifications Because I do know, and I'm starting to learn That the official uniform of the Karen is a striped top or dress. If you see that kind of print, please, please run in the other direction. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can get your own This Is Hell medical face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can email us your question from hell answer. You can tweet it to us. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show?
2: Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Arnel G says... Those nice young men in their clean white coats who have come to take me away. Aha. <laughs> Did not expect to hear a Napoleon 16th reference oh on this. Warnell says, I am just a soldier in the war on facts. <laughs> Joshua W. says, My crippling fears of the unknown. <laughs> Cheryl W. says, Oh, by the way, you're welcome for that. Which MFer said, Cankles. <laughs> uh, Marius S. says, Terrorists. She's pointing it at terrorists and not the peaceful kind either. <laughs> uh, Sebastian M. said, These nuts. Dennis H. says, my doppelganger. And finally, Aaron B. says, a probability cloud of quantum particles that happens to look like Elon Musk. No, I do not understand quantum physics. Thanks for
1: the umlaut and doppelganger. I really appreciate the fact that you were able to copy and paste that in. Alex, we have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, this is is hell. We got some more listener feedback sent to us via email at, chuck at this is hell.com You can also email Alex at alexatthisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Send us a message via Facebook Messenger at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. And if we think that our audience will like your question or query or suggestion or comment, we'll share it with them on the air. Eric sent an email asking about an artist who was featured at one of our annual This Is Hell listener appreciation parties that we've hosted every July for the last several years. In fact, this year was supposed to be our fifth annual 20th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, celebrating being on the air for 24 Years, Yeah, 5th annual 20th anniversary is kind of clunky, and you would think that would add up to 25 years, but again, the demon number of zero comes into play, so 5th annual 20th anniversary party is actually our 24th anniversary party, but with COVID-19, we're going to have to cancel this year's anniversary party, which means next year's 25th anniversary party is going to be a blowout. And with me no longer having to do a show on the day of the party, I will actually be able to host without being completely exhausted before the party even starts. Eric writes, Hi Chuck, a few years ago you spoke about a photographer living in the Denver area who took photos of things like antenna stations and coal mines, framing them in really dark and overbearing angles. Would you happen to know his name? I ordered one of his pictures and I love it. So it bums me out that I can't give him appropriate credit. I know this is a wild shot, so don't feel bad about disappointing me, Eric. Eric, first of all, I would not feel bad about disappointing you. I would feel horrible. The artist Eric is talking about is photographer Ron Pollard of the project We Kill Everything. Rich was uh, or Ron was one of the featured articles at our This Is Hell art show featuring art by listeners or suggested by listeners of This Is Hell during our third annual 20th anniversary party back in 2018. Ron's project We Kill Everything is a series of images that several time past This Is Hell guest Henry Giroux calls just stunning. So cleanly, formalistically so as to enhance lyrical portrayal of the daily pathologies that make up American life. Henry sure is one with words, Annie. Ron's images include a wide landscape of a mountain range with a strip mine gouged into a valley and looming over the mine high up in the mountains emblazoned on the mountainside as a huge brightly lit crucifix there's another image of a landfill as big as a mountain over a suburban neighborhood one of my favorites of ron's that he brought to our show all the way from denver a couple years ago is an image of a pristine perfectly landscaped golf course in the background and in the foreground are their are their neighbors prisoners in a highly secure detention facility surrounded with tall fences and razor wire Eric and everybody, you can still see and order Ron's images at his website, WeKillEverything.com. And Ron has new work in the series. There's Fox News Fast Food, which is really creepy. Another called Assassin Lunchbox, which is a picture of, yes, an assassin lunchbox on a table in an elementary school. And you are only going to see these kinds of images at WeKillEverything.com or at an art show hosted by this is Hell, if you want to send us your suggestions for guests, criticism of our show, any comments you would like to send along at all, please send them to Chuck at hellcom message them to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, or message them to us via Facebook at Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. Coming up on This Is Hell, racism, patriarchy, misogyny, neoliberalism, maybe the biggest challenge we face is conservative nationalism. We will tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this hell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is who or what are you pointing that gun at? Who or what are you pointing that gun at? And we will be announcing our favorite. And the winner of this week's uh, question from hell will get a this is hell medical face mask, which are suddenly back in style in places like Texas and Florida. Who knew? Oh, yeah, everybody. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff finds out who put the pump in Pompeo. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. The nation is a relatively new concept emerging only in the 1600s, which is weird because that seems to be right around the time that a lot of other stuff started emerging, like racism, settler colonialism, imperialism, and all of the wars that came along with racism, settler colonialism, and imperialism. Returning to This Is Hell, this time to help us reconsider and re examine conservative nationalism, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour wrote the Salvage quarterly article, The Nationalist Unconscious. Welcome back to This is Hal Richard.
0: Uh, I'm very glad to be back. Thanks very much for having me. Just a quick note, um, the article you're talking about is from Red Pepper. I have written another article about disaster nationalism for the salvage quarterly
1: because at the end at the bottom of the red pepper site it says you can read this article at salvage click here so i was totally confused about that so i will give this cre- <laughs> i will give this credit where credit is due this was posted at red pepper but richard is a member of the editorial collective at salvage a biannual journal of revolutionary arts and letters you can find out more about salvage at their website salvage.zone and you can follow salvage on twitter at salvage.zone as well this is richard's sixth appearance on This is Hell You can hear all of our interviews with Richard At thisishell.com And we would tell you to support Richard's fantastic work on Patreon Just search on Richard Seymour But Richard has twice as many subscribers As we do on Patreon So we will not be telling you to support Richard's work At (laughs) Patreon.com By searching on Richard Seymour That's S-E-Y-M-O-U-R Do not do that Don't do that Richard. Thank you so much. (laughs) Certainly, certainly. So uh, this article really is fantastic. You write fantasy is more powerful, more seductive than simple appeals to well-being. The satisfaction of building the wall, getting them out, choosing us over them or getting Brexit done matters more than one's diminishing material security. Political economy only gets us so far in understanding how this happens. To fully grasp it, we also need to engage with the psychoanalysis and its exploration of symptoms, fantasy, and the unconscious. And you start your article about this whole thing that was everybody was saying back during the campaigning years of bill clinton back in 1992 it's the economy stupid we heard pat buchanan saying this we heard this over and over within media analysis it's the economy stupid it's the economy stupid what was missed it almost it seems like intentionally what was missed in that framing of it being the economy stupid
0: well, I mean, that wasn't entirely wrong. I mean, it had a certain basis because the economy was uh, in relative terms um, kind of doing well and it was doing just well enough to keep just enough people on side um, in what was becoming quite a brutal, um, one might say, neoliberal system. OK, so um, and at the same time, um, and this is quite an important part of the story, the um, in order to cope with some of the dysfunctions um, and antagonisms that arose during that period, when you know people sometimes were working for jobs uh, to keep their families alive, you know, during that time in which um, you know you could get you could get work, you could get pay, but things could be quite rough. Um, public services would be cut. Um, there was permanent light austerity, if you like. Um, but, you know, there was just enough money in the economy to keep it all going. Well, one of the ways they dealt with that was by promoting this kind of uh, autocratic, securitarian nationalism. And this wasn't coming from the far right, it wasn't coming from conservatives, it was coming from New Labour in Britain, um, from the Socialist Party in France. Um, and, you know, from liberals uh, in Canada, and, you know, the Democrats uh, promoted their version of it in the United States. So um, I just want to say that although what we're confronting now is a version of conservative nationalism, uh, it has roots, it has origins in a turn to the right uh, in official liberalism. And uh, you can particularly trace this back to, for example, September 11th, and the way in which a big chunk of the liberal intelligentsia turned to the lunatic Islamophobic right um, in the years following that. Um, And they have uh, many of those same people today are outright conservative nationalists. In the UK context, they'd be Brexiteers. So that's the that's the background, I think.
1: So why does neoliberalism lead to conservative nationalism? Do you think that that was the intent? Was this just a mistake along the way? Liberals thinking, oh, you know, we'll have this new version of liberalism that will be more market-oriented, more public-private partnership, and this is going to work out great. Or do you think that this was the intent to bring about conservative nationalism?
0: Oh, no, I don't think it was any intent at all. I mean, the people um, uh, behind... uh what you call neoliberalism, where, uh, you know, um, firm believers in globalization, in global liberalism, um, in uh, a a more fully connected world, but a world connected on the terms that would be supported by the U.S. Treasury, Wall Street, um, and various liberal uh, multilateral institutions, which would promote privatization, um, which would promote uh, a streamlined public sector, which would put pressure on welfare systems, and generally speaking, um, elevate, um, in Marxist terminology, the rate of exploitation of the of labor. Okay, so. Um, I think that's what they wanted. But at the same time, you know, neoliberalism was never pure. I mean, in no iteration, perhaps the most uh, combative neoliberal um, in history was Margaret Thatcher. I mean, I suppose you could say Ronald Reagan, but I think uh, that Thatcher was more ideologically committed to specifically neoliberalism than he was. But Thatcher was also a pretty right-wing nationalist. And the reason for that uh, was partly that's just because how she felt about the world. She had a pretty petty bourgeois upbringing. She understood the life world, the prejudices of Middle England, um, and she didn't even have to think about it to echo those prejudices. So that's one part of it. But another part of it is that um, in order to build a political coalition um, whereby you can Uh, unite really very different groups of people who expect different things out of life and want different things out of you as a politician, you have to offer something that stitches those uh, coalitions together. Um, And nationalism happened to be one way of doing that. Um, You know, so for Thatcher, the idea was uh, we're going to save Britain from uh, national decline. We're going to save Britain from military decline. You know, go to war of the Falklands. Uh, we're going to save Britain from the enemy within by beating the IRA and beating the unions. Uh, all of this stuff was consubstantial with, or at least coextensive with, this sort of neoliberal drift. And when New Labour in this country got into office, uh, they had a uh, you know a progressive uh, moment here and there, but um, when there were riots in the north of England, um, uh, which were prompted by racism, local authority council cuts, police violence, fascist uh, marching on the uh, on local areas, all of that stuff. Um, they responded by racializing it, by saying that the problem was Asian communities who self-segregated and didn't integrate into the national community. So that language of nationhood and of belonging, which is almost always exclusionary, um, was available to them as a, as a technology of government, as a way of keeping control, and as a way of um, organizing their response to emerging challenges. And so, in the context of the war on terror, they just ramped that up, they militarized it, and they just made it 10 times worse. If you want to understand why Brexit happened, why the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage, and so on, uh, emerged to, to a position of strength, uh, that's the context that you have to look at. You have to trace it back um, to those roots.
1: So what was what was missed in their understanding then of neoliberalism when they thought it would lead to globalization and instead it led to conservative nationalism? What didn't they understand about neoliberalism or what did they overlook about neoliberalism that it wouldn't lead to the, system, the global system they thought it
0: would? Well, they got their global system, but in terms of the consent, in terms of popular um, belief in this system, Um, What they overestimated was the uh, power of the wage packet. I mean, apart from anything else, we had the 2008 credit crunch. Okay, so already that's beginning to erode consent. It's creating a crisis of authority. It's creating a crisis of legitimacy. The public institutions are already widely distrusted. So you've got this crisis. And uh, in the background, you've, you've had these nationalist ideologies circulating for a long time. But people start to want First of all, some sense of meaning in their lives. I mean, it's not just about the money they've got. The money can enable you to sustain some sort of meaningful life for a while. But people want some sort of collective um, enjoyment of being together and finding ways of doing that in the modern era when the unions have been smashed. When the old traditions of the carnivalesque in the streets, you know, um, you think about the sort of um, the massive cultural entity that, for example, the Italian Communist Party represented in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, like uh, that that was a way of creating meaning. Thinking about the cultures of cooperativism and grassroots laborism in the in the United Kingdom um, prior to neoliberal era. That created a fabric of meaning. It, it had its dark sides, of course, but the point was that people had ways of being together and of enjoying one another and um, of, um, of, of a kind of shared identity and love um, that neoliberalism really doesn't make space for. It doesn't have the space for that. And hence the only sort of collective um, uh, sort of frenzies that were allowed um are tend to be sort of nationalist spectacles like the Olympics, like the World Cup or some sort of football game, or uh, like the in in this country we have like royal weddings and jubilees and things like that. Um, things where the, the the symbol that you're rallying behind is uh, the the national flag. Um, and so that's you know that's that's the basis of this, but here's the thing. We talk about, uh, you know, loving our country, being patriots, loving the flag, all the rest of it. But that has to be always subtended somewhere by violence and hate. And you just have to look at what happens when you have these spectacles. Look at the football pitches. Look at the Ecstatic um, riotous feelings that people have sharing these moments of triumph and defeat together and then look how frequently it turns to violence, you know, riots on the streets, football fans mauling one another and so on. I mean, that's a pretty obvious example, Um, but nationalism tends to do that. Um, And so there might be something going on here that doesn't have to do with, you know, Uh, Economic self interest, enlightened self interest, you know, uh, with the pay packet. Um, And if you look at this country, look at the people who voted for Brexit. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that people voted for Brexit uh, to leave the European Union, which is this, uh, you know, an an instance of globalization, if you like, or or at least a sort of liberal trading alliance. Um, To leave that, the main thrust of the campaign to leave was anti immigrant, it was racist. Um, And if you look at it, um, the polls show that the people who support this would be prepared to see a lot of uh, loss of their material well-being, such as they have of it, um, in order to get that achieved. They would be happy to see the economy damaged, that's 60% of them. 40% would be happy to lose their own jobs. You know, They'd be happy to see their friends and family lose their jobs. Conservative Party rank-and-file militants who love Brexit would be happy to see the economy tank. They'd be happy to see the Union, the United Kingdom, break up. They'd be happy to see their own party destroyed. Those were, were what the polls were telling us. People became really invested in this idea. And it's worth thinking about, what is it that Brexit offered when it wasn't offering, palpably wasn't offering any improvement to their material circumstances?
1: And now we are seeing a lot of their personal circumstances being undermined by this pandemic. What impact yeah. has the pandemic had? I mean, a lot of people have lost their jobs. Uh, unemployment has doubled. It's supposed to go up another 126 percent. There is a Guardian report where they were talking about how uh, the uh, additional funds to people who have lost their jobs are going to, were going to be cut off for new entrants as of yesterday. How bad are things going to get for the same people who are willing to sacrifice their jobs? Are they still willing to sacrifice for Brexit now that their jobs have been sacrificed for the pandemic?
0: That is a huge unknown. The fact of the matter is that the pandemic represents potentially an epical rupture uh, in politics that uh, throws everything up into the air again. Uh, If we'd been talking um, back in, uh, say, February, um, the situation would have appeared a lot more clear um, in terms of we were looking for about 10 years of um, dominance by reactionary nationalism globally with the left on the defensive and liberals, by and large, caving into the right. Um, we would have, I would have said that uh, Trump would have got elected, no problem. And indeed, up until May, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and that uh, uprising, it looked very much like that was going to happen. Um, Bolsonaro, I would have said, would have got back in. Um, Narendra Modi was re-elected. Uh, Duterte, the right-wing authoritarian leader of the Philippines, was <laughs> won the midterms after two years of death squad rule and chaos um the hungarian nationals keep being re-elected netanyahu keeps squeaking back in um and so on so that would have been the picture what what the situation is now is is less clear because the thing about the pandemic is that it calls for um uh what you might call a kind of biopolitical response right and biopolitics is all about you know the 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 physical Um, health and security of a a particular biological um, entity, a group of people. Um, And yes, that can go in nationalist directions, but it also tends to put much more emphasis on, say, the Department of Health, the World Trade Organization, than on the home uh, office, the Department of Immigration um, than on the military, than on the Pentagon, you know. So it shifts the uh, focus of politics um, towards a different line of antagonism. And also because of what's happening to the economy, it's honestly not clear how bad people's lives are going to get and what effect that will have. On the one hand, I would be totally unsurprised by an authentically fascist uh, street movement developing. Um, in the coming years, because it's going to get very, very grim um, in terms of living standards unless um, governments worldwide uh, undertake a drastic departure from uh, neoliberal policies, Um, which is not impossible. Um, But on the other hand, um, we've seen, you know, we've already seen the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which um, was uh, the biggest sort of set of urban uprisings since the 60s, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong about this. Uh, we're seeing a lot of labor action in the United States. Perhaps some of that has been exaggerated, but it's happening. Um, and uh, generally speaking, the the sort of the solidity of the right wing wave is not as strong as it was. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing to bear in mind is that um, we have seen in the context of the pandemic quite a lot of COVID denialism. Quite a lot of people saying either that it's not real or it's a Chinese invention or it's uh, being pr- uh, promulgated through 5G towers or uh, that uh, it's all real. But nonetheless, people shouldn't be um, such pussies about it. They should man up and get out there, um, as uh, Bolsonaro seems to suggest. Indeed, I think by and large, uh, there's a faction of the right that simultaneously holds all of those beliefs. Um and that brings us back to something that Freud uh, talked about in Civilization and Its Discontents. That was uh, written, I think, he started writing it in 1929, just as the German economy was collapsing and, you know, the um, neo-Nazis were about to be propelled to power in Germany. And one of the things he pointed out was that Civilization... Um, as many benefits as it brings, is actually quite an onerous thing. It's very difficult for people to bear, and there's a big temptation for people to tear it all down. And, um, you know, what he meant by that was simply that civilization is a restrictive force. It demands of us that we sacrifice uh, certain sexual and aggressive pleasures, that um, we... Um, uh, learn manners, that we learn ways of behaving towards one another respectfully, that we restrain ourselves in one another's company um, and we get certain benefits out of that but you know, it, it, it can be quite frustrating, too. Now, if you're on the right and you're a racist or a sexist, you must be sick to death of hearing all this political correctness. You know, you're sick to death of being told not to be a racist, sick to death of being told that you can't be sexist, sick to death of being told that you can't be homophobic. And so after all these years, this these de impulses, the desire to lash out. And to start bringing violence onto the streets again, and you see the Trump supporters out with their guns um, becomes uh, much more prominent. So what I'm suggesting here is that this form of nationalism, which I've called disaster nationalism, it's not new. It's some. It's always been a potential within nationalism, uh, and it's a kind of uh, it's a decivilizing impulse. It's a desire to start um, you know tearing down all the constraints. Uh, on civilized behavior. And uh, the 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 fantasy there is of some sort of bloody showdown. If you just listen to the QAnons and all the rest of them, um, their fantasy is that uh, there's uh, an apocalyptic race war coming, that the government has been taken over by some uh, communist or foreign interlopers. This goes all the way back to, you know, the John Birch Society and so on. And That, uh, you know, this disaster, hashtag white genocide or whatever else it happens to be, licenses them to pick up arms and start preparing for this bloody showdown. So you can see on the one hand, they're invoking these threats as something to be frightened of and wary of. On the other hand, they're absolutely salivating over it. They're loving it. This is what disaster nationalism is. On the one hand, it's always um, uh, organized against a threat. And on the other hand, it is magnetized to the image of annihilation. So,
1: uh, you may have missed the news, but on the front page of the New York Times, uh, neoliberalism ended in the UK over the last week. Uh, there was, in Monday's New York Times, uh, headline, a surprising role model emerges for Boris Johnson. FDR, the British Prime Minister yes. trying to regroup in the coronavirus pandemic, wants to bury Thatcherism and embark on a program of ambitious public works. So, Richard, has... Boris Johnson just completely flipped and gone full-blown FDR like the New York Times is telling us?
0: Uh, It's not entirely wrong, but it's not quite like that. Um, I had that
1: feeling that was the case for some reason.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair, he has framed his uh, ambitions entirely within this FDR framework. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's appropriating the left's language. He's been doing it uh, since he took the conservative leadership. Um, Don't forget that they ran for office. Although they talked a lot about get Brexit done, get Brexit done, a lot of one of their subtexts was they were going to spend a lot of money. They were going to borrow money and they were going to invest in the economy. Now, they weren't going to do any of this lefty stuff like, you know, looking after uh, poor people, uh, spending more money on um, uh, the Green New Deal or any of that stuff. What they were interested in was, you know, building to get the capitalism booming again. Um, and they could, you know, they could spend that money. They could go up to like rundown constituencies in the North, for example, where they, uh, were hoping to win on a Brexit vote and say, look, we're going to spend our money on road building. We're going to spend money on building railways here. You're going to see jobs in this town that you haven't seen for a long time. Now that's a hell of an offer. And that's not quite neoliberalism. So the break has been, uh, on the cards for some time. Um, And it's just been a question of how sharp the break will be. It's never pure because, don't forget, it's still the Conservative Party. It's still the party of Thatcher. It's still the party that was made by Thatcherism. But they've understood that, first of all, uh, they they understood that to, um, you know, uh, make the British economy work after Brexit when Britain's just lost its major export market is going to require a lot of intervention. There's no doubt about that. Um, And second of all, now that we've had the pandemic and it's uh, cut growth by 25 percent and, uh, you know, there's a lot of hidden unemployment in the UK because of the furlough system at the moment. um, They've seen that. How is the economy going to rebound? It's going to rebound with extensive state intervention. So I think it's possible entirely for the neoliberal era to be uh, winding down and for something new Um, And a different kind of uh, political reaction to be emerging with a kind of, if you like, um, a corporatist competitive state um, uh, flying the flag, bashing immigrants, uh, building stronger border walls, but at the same time investing heavily in uh, the industrial infrastructure. Um, You could see that kind of thing emerging. It has been uh, out of fashion for Uh, many, many decades now. But that's entirely possible. And don't forget, um, you know, first of all, not only is this not the last wave of, I mean, I I shouldn't say this to an American because you guys haven't even got got past your first wave yet, uh, unfortunately, because of Mr. Trump. But Um, we're going to see more waves of this uh, pandemic but also we're going to see more pandemics that's absolutely clear every scientific authority on this is clear that the way the world economy works at the moment is going to bring us more pandemics well it seems to me that the uh, neoliberalism is not going to come up with the answers to that so right-wing nationalism may be our big enemy in the future and it's a much It's potentially a much more sophisticated enemy than we give it credit for. We often like to write it off as vulgar and obvious and demagogic. um, But if that was just the case, we wouldn't be getting hammered by it as we have been.
1: You write that anyone who went around claiming to be invulnerable, eternal, morally infallible, strong, and triumphant would be considered dangerously deluded. Yet such claims are extremely common in the rhetoric of nationalism, especially imperial nationalism. So are nations dangerously deluded? Are we all complicit in the dangerous delusion of nationalism? I I, I guess my bigger question is, why do we allow ourselves to be deluded when it comes to nations, but we don't allow that kind of delusion to ourselves Individually, I mean, I would think that we would apply the same standard to both.
0: Um. Well, that's a good question, and I think it's a question that can only be answered historically and empirically in a way because the question is uh, why is it that we're allowed to think of nations in terms of these uh, mythical um, godlike qualities? Um, It seems to me that there's a transference, um, not in the psychoanalytic sense, but a transference from religious uh, practices um, and feudal forms of rule um, such that, you know, like you mentioned uh, in your introduction that settler colonialism, um, racism, uh, empire, Um, And, you know, you might have also added capitalism emerged roughly around the same period um, as a as a globalizing phenomenon. Um, And it seems to me that um, the question of how the Holy Roman Empire, for example, or before that, you know, just the power of Rome um, and the power of Christendom uh, transmuted into the sort of uh, rule of nation states and to a globalized system of nation states. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to go into uh, too much detail about this, but there are, there are two ways of thinking about this um, that uh, I find quite convincing. One of them is um, uh, the point of view of um, uh, Perry Anderson's brother. I forget his name. Um, uh I can't remember his uh, name. Uh, I'm going to sound ridiculous. S- sorry.
1: That's okay. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, tr- I'm struggling with it too. We've talked to Perry a couple times okay. on the show. Anyway,
0: uh, he's he's written. Um, he, he wrote uh, the um, uh, imagined communities. Uh, Benedict Anderson. That's his name. Um, and uh, you know, essentially, he explains nationalism in terms of the emergence of print culture, uh, in which you know, gr- uh, growing literate groups of people could. Um, share a literate culture and share a conversation. And from that nucleus would emerge something like a national culture. Um, and so you can see that, uh, you know, there there's a sort of material basis for this in what he called print capitalism. You know, the first mass produced commodity was the book um, from that point of view. The other side of it, though, I think, um, and this is, uh, 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 you know, the work of Anthony W. Marx, uh, who talks about um, the necessarily exclusionary origins of nationalism, and nations always have the tendency to, um, or nationalisms always have the tendency to emerge where they do uh, in response to um, what is perceived as an apocalyptic threat. In other words, a threat to social order, a threat to um, uh, the existing hierarchy. And what nationalism offers, in a way, is to displace the antagonism. Whatever fight is going on within um, is pushed outside. Um, And it's also a way, I I mean, you know, I I can't recall every single detail about this, but if you look at Anthony Marx's work, he describes examples where... um, Major historical events were consigned to the dust heap, literally vanished from history, like massacres, things like that were vanished from history uh, in these new nationalist rituals. And so um, nationalism uh, is a way, is a kind of, um, you know, a way of engaging with an apocalyptic threat, as it were, um, and a way of displacing it. Um, And uh, finding, uh, uh, you know, if you've got, for example, uh, brutal and violent and bloody class war going on in the country, uh, nationalism is a pretty good response to that, because uh, if you can say, look, we're all together, we're all the same, whatever class we come from, our real enemy is uh those people over there or this this internal migrant population we can blame uh gays we can blame the jews we can blame blacks we can blame gypsies you know um we can blame muslims uh as would be the contemporary strategy now i'm putting this quite crudely to make the point clearly but you can see how that would work out in the um varied and subtle ways of history so i think that's uh, maybe how the things are connected so it
1: bring, it, 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 make, it makes us, nations are a deluded state uh, They uh, have exaggerated threats It leads to, uh, uh, nation. the nation is a very paranoid situation And it makes, I would assume, the society paranoid as well We've had guests on who say we need to defeat racism, misogyny, patriarchy, white privilege, white supremacy, capitalism, neoliberalism, settler colonialism, imperialism And now you're pointing toward conservative nationalism are they all one and the same? Does nationalism include all those other isms and anarchy, I guess? Can addressing or defeating nationalism defeat all those other forms of institutionalized oppression that guests have analyzed on our show?
0: No. Um, uh, And uh, I think that we want to avoid um, any kind of um, overly easy reductionism. What I mean by that is, you know, the idea that um, if you find one instance uh, of a problem in a society uh, and say that's the core and everything else follows from that, um, and therefore, if you destroy that, then everything else will, be, uh, will become just. I think societies are far too complicated for that. Uh, I'm not against a certain kind of Marxist reduction. Uh, in other words, I do think ultimately capitalism uh, needs class society. It needs class divisions in a way that it doesn't necessarily need every other um, division that it organizes. But, um, you know, in in practical terms, in everyday life, in real life, we see that all of these different things that you talked about, uh, sexism, racism, uh, nationalism, capitalism, class divisions, they all have a relative autonomy. Um, from one another. They're all kind of working at their own rhythm, although they're connected and they feed one another in different ways. And I would just say that um, we need to keep a, 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 a grasp on that um, uh, complexity. But what I would say also is, um, you know, uh, I talked about Freud's uh, civilization as discontents, uh, but, you know, connected to this work was the concept of the death drive. And I haven't really mentioned that. And it's a complicated and Well, actually, it's a very simple concept, but it's actually a profoundly controversial concept because uh, it implies the idea, you know, a profound anthropological pessimism that human beings just have this, you know, propensity within them uh, to, you know, they they want to die or there's something in them wants to die and something in them wants to kill. Um, And, you know, whether or not, I mean, that's just unprovable. We can't possibly know that. But what we can say is that an observable aspect of human behavior is that you know quite a lot of human behavior um is not explicable in terms of uh rational self-seeking you know the the stuff that we've inherited from classical political economy um and it's not also not explicable in terms of class self-interest uh you know i i would like people to organize Along class lines and organises uh, trade unions and as class parties, I would like to organise people as socialists if possible. Um, but I, you know we have to understand that to get there, um, we have to reckon with the fact that human beings have some uh, capacities for darkness uh, or what we call darkness, um, and that um, we have to negotiate with that. We have to make space for that uh, because if we don't make space for that, we end up producing something even more um, repressive. Um, and so that that would be the point that I would finish on. You know, I, I've talked a lot about how, you know, nationalism is irrational. I've talked about how imperial nationalism in particular likes to talk in, in these grandiose terms of, you know, uh, the nation will never be defeated. It's a, it's immortal and, you know, all the rest of it, uh, it's it's greatness. Um, and I've talked a lot about the sort of um, self-destructive propensities of this form of reaction. But it's, it's not just the right uh, on which these darknesses uh, operate. And it's not just the oppressors among whom these darknesses operate. And we have to get away from any uh, simple uh, politics of, um, uh, you know, beautiful soul politics wherein uh, because they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. You know, uh, I think that's very, very clear. The, um, you know, the left has a history um, and not just the left. I mean, practically every sort of political strand you can think of has a history in which uh, it's also had uh, manifestations of, uh, you know, uh, aggressivity, death drive, whatever you want to call it. So we need to engage with that while also recognizing that, you know, the the major forces of apocalyptic destruction on our planet are those uh, sort of what I call disaster nationalists who are pushing us to complete destruction uh, in terms of climate, in terms of race wars that they want to pursue and in terms of their uh, you know, global sort of politics. Um, if, if they get what they want, we really are headed for absolute destruction.
3: Well,
1: you also write about conspiracy theorists. This is where conspiracy yeah. thinking takes root, offering its adherents the narcissistic thrill of getting what the sheeple do not and the addictive pleasure of focused hate. Is, are conspiracy theorists, are conspiracy theories, are they all about trying to attain some sort of elitism, the same elitism that they themselves and their theories may in fact condemn in others? And What explains that kind of desire for an elitism when they seem to be always attacking an elitism?
0: That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I understand that uh, we all have, you know, uh, say what you call elitist pretense, uh, propensities. Uh, we we all have these uh, um, this ability to look down on other people um, and it can be a consolation when you're the one being looked down on. Um, uh, and uh, when you are when you're not very powerful, and when actually you're quite badly done by and oppressed and exploited and all the rest of it. Um, but quite often, what's going on here with these conspiracy theories? um Adorno made this point. If you look at particularly anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, um, however terrifying they are, Um, You know, in terms of their internal structure, you know, they believe that the Jews have all this power, that they uh, are are threatening absolute destruction, all the rest of it. However frightening they are, at least the world makes sense. At least it orients you. At least now you can say, I know where I stand in this world. And even if I have to go down fighting, I I know where I'm supposed to be. And uh, the theologian Tad DeLay, whose works I heartily recommend... Uh, makes the point that these um, sort of new reactionaries, uh, quite often what they're doing um, is searching for their place in the world. In other words, they pose as rebels uh, in, in psychoanalytic terms, they pose as perverts, but they're actually neurotics they really want to be told where their place is they want to get back to some sort of structure where they knew where they stood and you know the mra stuff is very telling on this point you know mra conspiracy theory holds that um, the the sexual world is dominated by the chads and the Staces and the tyrones and all of this stuff um, and essentially uh, that uh, they are being somehow deprived of sexual enjoyment in life because of some bizarre evolutionary story that they've told themselves. And so they end up um, engaging uh, in these um, sort of brutal terrorist attacks uh, because they say that feminism has uh, caused them to be cut in this particular scenario. Um, but if you, if you look at it, um, if they don't know what it is to be manly, in this day and age, if they don't know what it is to be uh, an adult male, um, uh, uh, and, and if, you know, the old protocols of masculinity are under attack because they're perceived as being linked to patri- patriarchy, because they're uh, perceived as uh, sexist, misogynist, and so on, well, what, is, what does it mean to be a man anymore? And that's their dilemma. And not just their dilemma, to be fair. Um, I think there's a whole, there's whole generations of us that uh, are are in that sort of situation. They just happen to have resolved that by going to this right wing conspiracy theory. So conspiracy theory has the constellation that uh, it uh, alleviates an anxiety. Um, And then, of course, as you say, because you have access to this uh, hidden knowledge um, and because you get something that uh, you, you can't believe that other people don't, um, then, yeah, you get to feel a little bit uh, of um, a narcissistic buzz because everything suddenly makes sense. But you know what? I've talked to a lot of depressed people and I've been through depression myself, of course. And this feeling of getting something that other people don't is actually very similar to a feeling of depression. When you're really experiencing the darkness, the world presents itself to you in a way that is very difficult to explain outside of this uh, state of depression. Uh, uh, You experience it as utterly pointless. And you think, how could I not have understood this before? And how do other people not get it? How are they so stupid? How do they believe in this myth, this lie, this illusion? And I think that this depression has a lot to do with these conspiracy theories. I think it's telling that all of these lone wolves who go out massacring, almost all of them, to a man, and they almost are all are men. I think um, they want to. They want to die. They want to kill themselves. They either try and uh, they either try and shoot themselves after committing their massacres, or they try and get the cops to kill them. Or they plead to be killed. These are people who. Um, you know, we've seen this going on in our society for a long time. There's a lot of depression. Um, there's a lot of melancholia circulating. Um, there's a lot of thwarted mourning, I think, um, over various losses. And some people understand that thwarted mourning in terms of their racial position. Some people understand it in terms of, uh, you know, lost dominance of masculinity. Um, Some people don't understand it at all and they just drink themselves or they self-medicate, they take uh, opiates or whatever. But if you think about all of the problems that uh, afflict American society today and British society and elsewhere, look at the rates of depression, look at the rates of suicide, look at the rates of opiate abuse um, and look at the not just the lone wolves, but um, the the mass shooters who go out for no apparent reason um, and shoot up a school or, you know, a bunch of tourists. All of these things, I think, I think in some way basically are connected and the conspiracism comes in uh, as a way of making sense of that condition, particularly when all the dominant institutions, the newspapers, the politicians, the parties, the corporations, the scientists, they can't be trusted anymore. They've all been found lying one way or another. How can you trust them? Uh, you know, and if, if you're African-American, you know, we, we, we make fun of uh, people who are anti-vaxxers. But if you're African-American, um, you w- might remember the Tuskegee experiment um, and the fact that, you know, uh, you, you, black people were literally used for a medical experiment and al- allowed to die. Um, so there there is a real basis for these conspiracy theories. Often they're operating on something that's real, some real tr- sort of traumatic kernel, if you want to call it that. Um, And they just give it this uh, expression that happens to be very, very right wing um, uh, and actually uh, catastrophically right wing, uh, I might say. Um, So, yes, it's uh, elitism in as much as uh, sometimes it's about uh, the, the conspiracy theory is about propping up a hierarchy, defending a hierarchy that's under threat. But I think more importantly, it's a kind of psychic defense against a world that has stopped making sense for so many people um, and against um, a society that um, people are finding difficulty relating to as a society any longer.
1: And uh, I got one last question for you, Richard, but I just want to point out to everybody that – because it's something that's come up on our show – is that uh, Richard talks about the idea of we're all in this together and how that is very much a catchphrase or an idea that undermines – Uh, reinforces conservative nationalism. And I found that really fascinating. And I also wanted to mention that uh, you talk about the world of the concentration camp, which is where we might be headed to. And that is a very frightening thought. I just want to make sure people knew about that so they would go and read your article, because this really is stunning. And even though we've been talking about it for over a half an hour, we've only skimmed the surface of the story. So I've got one last question for you. And as we do, on our show with you, with all of our guests all the time, our final question for all of our guests is the question from Hal. We have been speaking with writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour, who wrote the Salvage, sorry, Red Pepper article, The Nationalist Unconscious. Richard <laughs> is a member of the editorial collective at Salvage, a biannual Journal of Revolutionary Arts and Letters. You can find out more about Salvage at salvage.zone. That's also their Twitter handle, but the word dot is spelled out, salvage.zone. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Leninology. You can find out more about Richard at leninology.co.uk. You can find all of our interviews. This is our sixth with Richard. You can find all of our interviews with Richard at thisishell.com. And, uh, you know, if you want to, you can go to Patreon and search on Richard's name. That's S-E-Y-M-O-U-R Show your support for Richard's writing It really is fantastic And his, his uh, Patreon uh, subscription is a great deal There's three different tiers And it's really fantastic So show your support for Richard as well One last question for you Richard, uh, the question from hell Is always the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer Our audience is going to hate your response Or it's just going to be a bad question You never know You write Take the male bonding cultures of today's far right Such as the Proud Boys As the theologian Tad DeLay points out A past guest on our show Many past guests on our show are quoted in your article. The unconscious shadow of their sup- supposed pride is shame. The Proud Boys are supposedly rebels, but they yearn to know their place. They almost sound like radical conformists to, de- to me. The Proud Boys are supposedly sexually confident, but fear their own sexuality, warning supporters against masturbation. They fear their screw-ups, but they find belonging together in violence. And like conspiracism, violence is addictive and has a propensity to escalate. It To me, Richard, it sounds like a a lot of pent up sexuality. Would the proud boys just go away if they simply learn the joy of masturbating or is it more than that,
0: Richard? Well, I don't think they would go away. Um, I think that uh, they're split on the question of masturbation. Um, and don't forget that there's quite a lot of um, sort of uh, porn swaggering uh, part of the alt-right, um, you know, which is, Um, linked to a kind of machismo and bravado. Um, I don't buy into the idea entirely that um, uh, this sort of, this new form of reaction is based on sexual repression, which is the old kind of uh, uh, William uh, Reich, uh, Reichian kind of theory. Um, I think if you uh, look at the history of this, look at the history of the Third Reich, for example, um uh foucault makes this point that actually you know um they really encouraged people to engage in their sexuality albeit in a very limited framework but uh, they were not like the church they didn't want to prevent people from uh having sex they encouraged adolescents teenagers to have sex um they encouraged their soldiers to have sex uh which probably meant encouraging them to rape people when they were out on the front line. Um, They encouraged extramarital affairs. They encouraged nudism. What they were against, um, uh, just to reiterate, was a kind of um, what they called a Jewish sexuality, you know, a kind of made-up burlesque sexuality. You know, so obviously they racialized it. Um, But if you look at Donald Trump, um, if you look at Silvio Berlusconi, and you look at their sexual swagger, and God, it hurts me to describe Donald Trump as having sexual swagger, but there it is. Um, if you look at these um, characters, you can go back and look at um, uh, certain similar characters on the um, uh, like allies of Mussolini uh, from the 1920s, like Denuncio. Um And you see that uh, th- this is this kind of sexual swagger um, is pre-sexual revolution. And it's not all about repression. So that answers your question probably in a more serious way than you intended. But uh, that's the way I that's the way I roll.
1: No, I, I think that that's a much better way of answering it And that was an exceptional answer, Richard And I always appreciate you being on our show This, again, is Richard's sixth appearance here On This Is How I'll writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour wrote the Red Pepper article The Nationalist Unconscious You can find out more about Richard by following him On Twitter, at Leninology And you can check him out at his website, leninology.com And don't forget to go to Patreon.com Search on Richard's last name, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R And show your support Thank you so much for being back on our show, Richard
0: Oh no! Thank you. Thanks for everything.
1: All right. Take care. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can debt <laughs> debt. You can subscribe to Tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash. This is hell. Coming up during the moment of truth. Jeff Dorchin Well... Find out who put the pomp in Pompeo I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show Podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry This week's question from L is Who are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question Wednesday, this is hell medical face mask You can leave your answer to the question from hell At our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us You can uh, post it, or you can email it to us Chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com Alex, do you have more listeners' answers To this week's question from hell?
2: Uh, yep. Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Paul S. says that is one scared white woman. She needs to get out more. <laughs> Justin M. says that great American electorate while making my best Jake Tapper face. Ugh. Braden S. says the, n- the next guy in a can you still call it a Mexican standoff? <laughs> I guess we'll find out pretty soon. Bradley R. says, The no-good yellow-bellied bastard that said This Is Hell isn't God's favorite radio show. Yeah, that's sh- shoot that guy. And one last one. Jacob H. says, the an- that, <laughs> that antique clown toy the size of my head, which sits on the shelf in case it decides to move because 2020 isn't horrible enough already.
1: <laughs> that is, sounds... Horrifying, Alex will have more of the rest Of your answers to this week's question from Mel Right after Jeff Dorch. And on Patreon tomorrow, live at patreon.com Slash hell at 10am Central Daylight Time Podcast shortly after We are playing an interview From almost exactly eight years ago, back in 2012, when we spoke with environmental science policy and management scholar Wayne Getz, who had just co-authored the paper, Approaching a State Shift in Earth's Biosphere, which was published in Nature. The paper concluded that a cataclysmic climate tipping point could not only happen this century, but within just a few generations, which sounded so unbelievable back in 2012 that we were the only ones discussing this possibility of a very quick collapse, it's worth a re-listen because it's still not the way in which climate change is being discussed today, especially now as climate change activism has been completely derailed by the pandemic. Also on Patreon tomorrow, I am going to be sharing something on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell that I have never, ever shared. Never discussed on the show in the past. Something that only my girly knows about. Something that... Haunts me like a spectre, always nearby, something that can strike me down, and add yet another horrible adjective to being your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, something that spells my unavoidable and inevitable doom. But you can only hear our twenty twelve conversation on the end of the world happening quicker than we think, and what scares me more than even climate change. The only way you can hear that is if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways in which you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merch. Coming up during the moment of truth, Jeff finds out who put the pomp in Pompeo. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell and announce the winner. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is Hell. I know you. have. Having I'm the line. What? You moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of the moment
3: of truth, moment of moment of the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of moment of Pompeo and circumstance. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Who put the pub in Reinz Pubis? Who put the "ba" in bar, the fly in Flynn, the rump in Trump? Who put the scales on Scalia? Who put the pomp in Pompeo? Pompeo, Pompeo, Secretary of State, the pompous, pumped up Pompeo. Pompeo distinguished himself at West Point by graduating first in his class. That is, he distinguished himself by leaving. They were so excited about him leaving that they made him go first. He was not the cutest, nicest girl at school. Although hefty comedian Jeff Garland famously had a routine where he contrasted his physical form with the words, I'm a pretty little girl. I'm a big fat man, he would say. And then, I'm a pretty little girl. And how the audience would howl in amusement. Pompeo, pompous, pumped up. From the French, pompier, fireman. The French find firemen funny. I don't know why. I think there's a rumor that all firemen are stupid. The Parisian Fire Department is a branch of the Armed Forces. Pompeo is a branch of the Armed Forces unto himself, who put the pump in Pompeo, inserted it in his puckered purple portal, and puffed him up to such a pompous proportion. Probably some pompier. Pompeo, Pompeo indeed. As noted above, he is not undistinguished. He's an accomplished scholar and former athlete. Like Bob Barr, the Attorney General... Pompeo had an impeccable record when viewed from afar. Both Barr and Pompeo are tools of Jesus the Conqueror, Jesus the Dictator, Jesus the one who graces the mighty chosen with the divine right of kings, you know, the evil Jesus, the asshole Jesus, the Jesus who wants the U.S. to inflict upon its foreign prisoners waterboarding, Stress positions, sleep deprivation, temperature extremes, rape, threats to their families, electrocution, and of course, rectal feeding. Rectal feeding, it also turns out, is exactly the way they pump the pomp into Pompeo. One day Pompeo might pop from all the pomp pump into him. Pompeo opposes abortion, even in cases of rape. He opposes gay marriage and any rights protecting gay and trans persons from discrimination. He, of course, opposes the closing of the prison at Guantanamo because it's such an idyllic paradise for rectal feedings. Just imagine him sitting on the veranda overlooking the bay enjoying a rectal feeding as the sun sinks below the horizon. When it came out that Trump had tried to extort president Zelensky of ukraine to publicly state he was investigating joe biden pompeo said he knew nothing about it he hadn't yet read the transcript turned out he didn't have to he was on the goddamn call he heard it firsthand he lied last year at about this time pompeo impaneled a commission to revise the state department's human rights focus to concentrate on freedom of religion their report is due out early this month While Dump has been busy packing the courts with anti-abortion, anti-queer, anti-poor, and anti-woman judges, Pompeo wants U.S. foreign policy to mirror domestic policy and support regimes who like to persecute those same populations and activities because he says that's what Jesus wants. It might seem a coincidence that Jesus wants the same things a homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic bigot does But it's no coincidence. The Jesus Pompeo knows so much about is an invention from his own arrogant skull, from the minds of the clandestine Christian crusaders who believe their success and power are divinely ordained necessities to eventually bring about a global theocratic dictatorship, a dictatorship for Jesus. Meanwhile, Attorney General Bob Barr just announced he's convening his own task force to redefine political enemies, so he can start rounding up Black Lives Matter and other anti-fascist activists. Yes, he also mentioned the Boogaloo Boys, but the anti-fascist groups are corralled under a much broader umbrella. He wants to return U.S. law enforcement powers to those it had under the Espionage and Sedition Acts of 100 years ago. All this as the presidential election creeps ever closer with dumps numbers sagging like his neck flab due to the deaths he's allowed from COVID-19 and now those of U.S. soldiers Russia's been paying the Taliban to kill. Now it would seem an auspicious time to gin up the base with a fresh commitment to hating everything they hate. A domestic commitment from Barr, international commitment from Pompeo the twin enablers of the pumpkin pussy grabber determined to get the Trumpist base to recommit their support in a recommitment ceremony they envision resembling a scene from Triumph of the Will. Evangelical fascist groups like the Fellowship have unholy influence in business and government. They're the group who puts on the national prayer breakfast every year, where every president since Eisenhower has broken bread with skulking schemers of skullduggery and skullfuckery they have one major thing in common with the ISIS caliphate movement and Hindutva Indian nationalist groups like the RSS, an affinity for enforced loyalty resembling that of totalitarian regimes from the Nazis, Franco, and Hideki Tojo, through Stalin, Mao, Reza Pahlavi, Perón, and Pinochet, to Marcos Somoza, the Khmer Rouge, and Bolsonaro. Antagonism toward all but the most fascistic expressions of popular rule runs deep in the veins of these organizations. This is why I discouraged praise for George Will when he broke with Trump conservatives. It's not the thuggish, gangsterish fascism Will doesn't approve of. It's the idea that Trump, who is extremely gauche and garishly nouveau riche in style, should be the charismatic tool to bring about a dictatorship of the elite George Will just doesn't like the vehicle his peers in the peerage have chosen to carry their banner. The banner itself is fine with him. Natural law. The most unnatural thing ever created by human nature. There it is, the First Amendment. Freedom of religion, the most important right on top of the list, says Pompeo. So we got it right. All other rights subordinate to whatever he imagines freedom of religion to mean. Barr and Pompeo, these two hefty, heavy-handed revisionists of freedom, whose capitalism is even worse than the one we're sweating under currently because where the normal capitalism is destined to fail due to its own contradictions, to collapse under the burden of its disparities of wealth and opportunity, this is Jesus capitalism, which will be satisfied when its excesses become overwhelmingly copious that they must spill out into the public. Normal capitalism is at least discreet enough to fly its torture victims to black sites and even outsource its torture. Normal capitalism at least makes embarrassed noises when the homeless and sick flood the public square and militarized police come a-clubbing in the thoroughfare. But Jesus capitalism is the divine justification for public squalor, torture, and mass murder, and the violation and desecration of the living earth. Poor people deserve to be poor. Sick poor people deserve to be sick and poor. It's not sadly necessary or unfortunate but unavoidable. It's what makes God happy. Jesus is a dick. That's why Kavanaugh could be a dick at his confirmation hearing. It's okay, he's just being like Jesus. That's why Dame Lindsey Graham decided to start emoting and bitching for the benefit of the dump regime. He knows who butters his biscuits. Jesus would approve, even if I'm totally gay, as long as I don't admit it, because Jesus never did. Who put the pomp in Pompeo? Jesus put the pomp in Pompeo. Jesus, that mentally disabled fireman, that firer of men. The entire system Root and branch is rotten to the core. That's why we all feel hopeful that these BLM anti police violence protests will continue. We can feel their goal bleeding into every aspect of our lives because every aspect of our lives is infected with the virus and violence of capitalism. Police thuggery is the outward blemish on the diseased body. Police are the cold sore, capitalism is the herpes. And apparently, Jesus loves herpes. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. <sighs>
1: I'm just surprised that there's been an uprising led by the Bureau of Land Management. It just shocks me every time I see
3: it on TV. <laughs> well, you know.
1: I didn't think that gotta tra- stand tough. I didn't think the social transformation that we we're waiting for was gonna be coming from that department of the government.
3: Well, you know, you haven't been paying attention, Chuck. I know. You just don't pay attention to the news. That's, <laughs> that's all.
1: That's my problem. All right, Jeffy. Until next time. Uh, Chuck, Yes.
3: we know that you've invented uh, beer that comes in a can with a twist-off cap. Yeah. Uh, what else are you inventing? I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know. One day we're going to find out. Uh,
1: uh, uh, a psychosis. I'm working on a psychosis right now, uh, Jeff. And so when I'm finished with my invention, I will uh, share it with you. Please do. Thank you. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is Hell I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap-tooth radio show podcast Live streaming host Chuck Mertz Producing is Alex Jerry This week's question from Hell is Who or what are you pointing a gun at? The person with our favorite answer Wednesday, this is Hell medical face mask Which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com And clicking on support Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers To the question from
2: Hell? Uh, I got a couple more via email and DM Uh, So this is from Adam B Who sent us a message from Gislaine M Gislaine? The Mm -hmm. Epstein lady Okay I can't remember how to spell her name yeah, out. I, I, but she says, not at myself. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> Rick M says, those who have it coming. <laughs> Neil R says, so who or what are you pointing a gun at? Neil R says, Snape just finished Half-Blood Prince. Really? I've never seen any of the Star Wars movies, so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Jeff D says the demon on my butt who speaks to me in profanity like a sailor tries to knock me down and put me on a hell ride it's a 22 because I don't actually because I don't want to accidentally blow my butt off (laughs) finally 70 Alephomanist via Twitter says myself in order to leave this hell for whatever happens after this hell
1: my answer to this week's question from hell who or what are you pointing a gun at Uh, the abyss because I figure if I shoot it enough it will finally go away stop beckoning my name oh how i hate the abyss i just wanted to shut up the answers i liked most this week were justin saying the great american electorate while making my best jake tapper face josh saying my crippling fears of the unknown and again josh you're welcome daniel saying the manager which might be the most spot-on answer for this entire thing Sebastian saying it's summer, so obviously my gun is pointed at the no good, all bad, glowing hot orb in the sky that makes life miserable for all of us. What good has it ever done for any of us? And why do we abide by its constant presence? I don't know, but I've had it. It's on, son. Kelly saying my children get the F on the lawn and stay there. Lisa saying pointing my glue gun as I bedazzle the crap out of everything. And Rosario Kind of saying what I was saying towards the void before it stares back at me. So, who do you like? Which one do you like the most, Alex? Anything else? Other ones that you liked? Uh, in I was a
2: fan of Andre J's "The Slow-Growing Rosemary in My Yard," <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll defer to you on this one. Oh, and uh, just speaking of uh, Jake Tapper, unless our Patreon gets to one hundred fifty-five thousand seven hundred eighty-one dollars a month, yeah, I'm gonna post those Jake, Ta- Jake Tapper interviews from the early two thousands. <laughs> If you don't want to hear Jake Tapper on This Is Hell, (laughs) you want to keep him off This Is Hell, then
1: you just keep donating and becoming a Patreon subscriber.
2: Every Patreon premium (laughs) is going to be that Jake Tapper interview until we I'm going
1: to go with Sebastian saying it's summer, so obviously my gun is pointed at the no good, all bad. Glowing hot orb in the sky that is the sun. I am with you, Sebastian. So Sebastian is the winner of this week's question. Mel, you have won a This Is Hell medical face mask. So all you have to do, Sebastian, is just send us your mailing address via Facebook Messenger. If you would like a This Is Hell face mask and did not win today, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support where you can see our entire store of stuff. Alex, as we are wrapping up our first six months of 2020, our first six months here on This Is Hell of daily shows, we'll be starting next week's show Monday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time by taking an inventory of everything we've learned so far this year. Everything we have been taught by our guests in the first half of 2020. We do this every six months to reconsider what we've been discussing on the show. So tune in Monday morning for everything we've learned so far this year on the show. More importantly, Alex, who's on the show next week?
2: I'm uh, real excited about this one. On Monday, Kai Heron and Jody Dean will be on to talk about their Eflux Journal article, Revolution or Ruin? I'm looking forward
3: to
1: that. Yeah,
2: it actually quotes a ton of conversations we've had on this, this <laughs> hell. a ton of writers we've had on this hell in the past six months. So really excited about that one. Tuesday, still working on looking for something on Israel annexing more Palestinian land. Wednesday, I made it happen. Finally, the government of beans. Yay! Regulating life in the age of monocrops by Craig Hetherington will be uh, Craig Hetherington will be on the show. Talk about his book. Really excited for that bean book. In a government of beans, do they all fight for
1: free holes? <laughs>
2: Please do not ask that as <laughs> a question for from- me. <laughs> Go
1: ahead. Uh, still working on Thursday and Jeffy. <laughs> and Jeffy will be back, of course, on Thursday. We start every week's live streaming shows here at com with Alex revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is homemade ginger juice. Homemade ginger juice. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including the Executive Committee of Barcelona and Camus, uh, member of that executive committee, Kate Shea-Baird, who wrote the Roar magazine article, Lessons from the Pandemic for the Municipalists in Spain. Monday's appearance was Kate's third here on the show. You can hear all of our conversations with Kate at our website, thisishell.com. Find out more about Kate at com. Thanks to historian Jennifer L. Holland, author of Tiny You, a Western History of the anti-abortion movement And I'm telling you, you do not understand The fight over abortion, the anti-abortion movement The Republican Party, white supremacy Even Fox News, unless you read Jennifer's Tiny You You can follow Jennifer on Twitter At Prof Jen Holland That's with two N's Also thanks to law scholars Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz Co-authors of the Boston Review article Hold Prosecutors Accountable To, which was reposted by our friends at Black Agenda Report. And finally, thanks to today's guest, writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour, who wrote the Red Pepper article, The Nationalist Unconscious. However, he is a board member over at Salvage Quarterly, and you can find out more about Salvage Quarterly at their website, salvage.zone, and you can find out more about Richard at his own website, leninology.co.uk. And you can hear all six of our interviews with Richard at our website, thisishell.com. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when I will be telling you. What has been secretly scaring the hell out of me More than even the coronavirus Or even climate change over the last few weeks And a few decades too And we'll share a 2012 conversation with a guest Who explains how climate change will happen devastatingly fast When we finally pass the tipping point of no return And the climate goes downhill fast And takes us and the planet with it I'm your bitter, blind, broke, Gap Radio show host Chuck Mertz Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show Thanks to... Richard Norwood and Theron Humiston, for all of their work behind the scenes, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is
3: on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my, de- <laughs> my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell right.